Section 14 of An Itinerant House and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Scano. An Itinerant House and Other Stories by Emma Frances Dawson. The Second Card Wins. Part 2. After we were in our box, Mrs. Capel looked at the playbill. The burlesque Evangeline, she exclaimed, and turned to Mr. Dillon. You have known a burlesque Evangeline in real life. There are such footballs of fate. He looked quickly at me. We will not talk of unhappy things tonight, he said. Then, turning to her, added, Silence is golden. Bent on making us enjoy, he brought us flowers and candy, and talked more than his wont. He toyed a while with the Indian fan, sketching the history of fans, and ending, as he returned it to Mrs. Capel with, Among the Asiatics, a fan in a plate of special shape told the condemned nobleman his sentence, and when he reached to take the gift, was the moment of losing his life. What a sigh you gave as you took the fan, Mrs. Capel. I said, as if he had been sentenced. To exile, with no hope of reprieve, said Mr. Dillon. Some stir of late comers caught my glance. When I again looked at Mrs. Capel, her breast heaved. The fan, half open, shook in her hand. Behind it, I caught a glimpse of a long slip of paper, like a check. I feel faint, she said. Mr. Dillon brought her some water and then she sat back out of sight, and he talked to me about those we knew who were in the house. But as I do not choose to let people dupe me with secrets right under my eyes, I soon said, Was that a love poem? What do you mean? he asked. That paper slightly thrust in and creased to fold with the fan, I said. I think the sounds from the orchestra screened a muttered oath. He looked so angry. Was it poetry? I insisted, not poetry, but a bit of philosophy, and a secret of mine, he added. I shall ask her to let me see it, I said, for I was provoked that he should try to fool me. He seemed confused, and, turning, looked at Mrs. Capel. The fan lay closed in her lap. Allow me, he said, gently taking it from her. At the same moment, his glance roving over the house, fell on someone he knew. Excuse me, he said, and rushed out. He came back almost at once, and, sitting beside me, opened the fan, withdrew a slip of thin paper from the sliding sticks, and gave it to me. I quickly unfolded it, and found a blank. Mrs. Clare, you have a very vivid fancy, he said, with a cynical smile which makes me sometimes almost hate him, and think if not Sam's friend, I would cut him. Only think, he went on, how all these commonplace people around us have each a story as picturesque and diverting as any play. There is a chance for your fancy. I should like to know all about their private lives, I said. Heaven forbid, he cried. Never try to go behind the scenes in real life. You will find the same dingy makeshifts, curtains, traps, 
and sudden steps up and down as on the stage. Mrs. Capel came forward and seemed like herself again. But I watched them both, for I felt that I was on the track of a strange story. Coming out, I was behind them and found on the floor where Mrs. Capel had been sitting a sheet of paper on which these lines were written. Without doubt, Mr. Dillon had meant them for me. I cannot remember breaking any promise to him. That is, of course, just poetical flummery. He must, manlike, have forgotten for the moment that I had lent the fan, and that it was not I who would find them in it, and his faint about the blank paper was done to hide his shame at his blunder. It was all quite plain. Title. Fantasy. Eclipse and sound of shaken hills and wings, darkening and blind inexpiable things. First part, the fan. Toy the most feminine, woman's will. Yet, Chinese the saying is, now I forget. Ivory, filmy, the fan of frail fret, holding one realm, with the Marie Antoinette coloret, baleful in ray, Crime beset carcanet, fame gem on gem. Eight words by Chinese sage at woman hurled. In minor tones, my heart throbs there upwhirled. Bauble of lace, all embroidered, unfurled, shadow in freak. That, at the court and play, feigned to the world. Blush roses bloomed upon rouged and empearled pompadour's cheek that pedant air he posed or learned primer quaffed rose in bloom romance in foaming brimmer down through the feasts of the lantern that glimmer three thousand years after the eye of fair cansey lent shimmer over her mask premier fan non make dimmer this of vague fears. Second part, spread. Reed broken, trailing wing, a darkened sky. Each are inherence of that bitter cry. Far, high horizon, leaning ore, a pallid moon, ruminant wandering through a blue sky. Curlew low flying, gull hanging high, down tilting loom. World grief is through his murmur surging free. So moan the billows and the wind in tree. Who is here roaming alone by the sea? Drift on the shore, blown and oblique? Let the dream figure flee. Why doth he, beating his brow, turn to me? What to deplore? His breaking heart in a proverb embalming. How could the cynic in China be harming? Picture of dread, a prophetic alarming, fate and despair. Meanwhile, the orchestra thrills with its charming trombilder, lumbi, composer, becoming castle in air. Third part, furled, phrased like a ghost with a finger on lip, love hooded heart like a bird let slip, plume upon plume here with down on the tip. Hovered in flight, or brambled hid city, voyaging ship, desert, mirage, 
and simoom but to dip a tranquil height on wind of every fan blown to its aim blows blowing yet that sigh of wrathful blame filigree silver and sandalwood frame hint caravan deep mining tunnel with torches aflame incense and rite in the great brahma name blessing or ban all the world over doth beauty cajole love learn the wisdom of that chinese doll clouds of enchantment around you uproll from fan and glove as if each flower you've worn left its soul like painted dream where to earth downward stole cherub or love fourth part the tassel few are his words but how much they betray pathos of novel or heart-rending play if as the magi held though all astray life a blind road i but intangible fibre obey spun from unpitying star on my day what may this bode my heart his tent i hear him low complain star falling venom flower are in the strain mine to be fashioned like mere tassel skein frosted the flame chill of your coldness to fire in my vein i flung from your hand as whim may ordain like puppet game fifth part the box passionate sage and i hearts of one race on my great wall of woe his words i trace trifle may prophecy even that case cushioned with crape broad rounded top with a narrowing base black on the white of your velvet and lace a coffin shape the saying truth in china or japan a woman's word is like a broken fan tuesday i was on my way to the street the elevator had just touched the ground floor when i found that stupid babette had given me the wrong gloves two of the same hue but where one had twelve buttons the other had but six i signed to the boy to go up again but he waited for a couple just coming from the street door who entered and in the change from outdoors to darkness did not see me in the corner but kept on talking you must cheer up she said and not look on life as a losing game perhaps you thought it won he sneered till you had the chance to cry checkmate you can talk thus when you could give up the certainty of happiness in a second venture give up the most constant of your girlhood's lovers give up the opportunity to redeem a broken promise all for the possibilities of money but think of those possibilities she answered happiness is among them as surely as money need not be reckoned in happiness you cannot judge you have not known the bitter taste of poverty but i do judge i know you are lost in a golden mist i cannot see how you could keep from seizing your freedom at the cost of that butterfly's wings she asked why should i break down a lovely flower i could not hurt one who has been kind to me but my conscience is not easy to have matters go this way said he what is a man's conscience she said a passing gust of wind 
that blows in the line of his glance, always coming up behind him, never blowing against him. But he has obeyed the dictates of conscience in... Dictates of conscience, she broke in. In a man who knows no difference between a desire and a duty. I cannot wonder that you are bitter, he said, to find your husband as you have. Oh, Mrs. Capel, I cried, grasping her arm. Have you found him? Oh, I'm so glad. Kiss me, my dear. Oh, tell me all about it. Come to my rooms. I will not go out this afternoon. I suppose I startled them both, seizing hold of her in the dimness, for she really screamed, Oh, my soul, I didn't see you. Great heavens, Mrs. Clare, cried Mark Dillon. Mrs. Capel's not well. Uh, she's on her way to her room to lie down. She has found a kind friend in you, Mrs. Clare, she broke in. I feel your sympathy. No, I have not found the man I married. Then the elevator touched our floor, and she and I stepped out. Mr. Dillon bowed and went down again. Mrs. Capel's eyes gleamed, and her lips wore a tense curve as she begged me to excuse her. She needed rest. As I watched her pass down the hall, her air made me think of the woman Sam cannot bear to see walk into the dining room because her gait recalls someone he has known. The more I thought over their strange talk together, the more sure I felt that there was some secret between them. I meant to know what. Our hotel gave a hop on Wednesday night. Sam and I were on the floor waiting for the music to begin. He often gets the band to play what he likes. Have you told the leader what you will have? Asked Mark Dillon as he strolled up to us. Shall I name The Open Road? Or Man Lives But Once? Sam answered, and his friend gave the order. When we sat down, he joined us, saying, after one of his old long looks at me, Well, Mrs. Capel has gone. Sam walked off, as he always did, when she was spoken of. So dull of Mr. Dillon not to know I was the one most interested in her. Without a word of farewell, I said. Oh, yes, he answered. She sent a goodbye to you. She got a letter Monday night that caused her sudden start. She meant to leave yesterday morning, but missed the train. Poor woman, said I. How I wish we could have helped her. She had her journey for nothing. No, he said. She gained by it. Experience. Yes, said I. She is richer, I suppose. Ah, oh, he spoke as if surprised. Yes, I answered. In thought and feeling. Oh, oh, yes, said he. Yes, I think she is richer. It has been worth to her at least a hundred thousand dollars. He was watching me so closely that I knew he felt I suspected him, and I changed the subject by asking, Isn't it a shame about the break in stocks? Break? Why, you are dreaming. Stocks are booming. Oh, no. Sam has just lost in them the hundred thousand dollars he promised me for my birthday. Is it possible? I was not aware. Oh, yes, to be sure. His wits seemed to be straying, but I suppose he was lost in admiration of my exquisite dress, gold-colored satin and cloth of gold, embroidered with seed pearls. Or was he thinking about her? 
How would her husband have felt if she had found him? I asked. How can I more than another answer that question? said he. Ask Sam. I am sorry for him, I said. For whom? he asked. For her husband, I answered. He has lost a good wife. Well, he said, musing, I once thought she had a good soul, but only a few souls are made. Half the world have none. I'm afraid she's like the most of us, mere painted slides on the lantern of life. But suppose, we will say suppose, she had found him married again? But, said I, losing patience, she didn't even find him. Oh, no, he replied quickly. I didn't say she did. He had been idly playing with my Indian fan, and now suddenly asked if I did not think the figure in the picture less plain than of yore. The old juggler really could foretell then, he muttered. But I wanted to solve the mystery, and began by asking, Why don't you marry? He smiled. Shall I say I am the victim of the cruel laws of being, or of chance? I only wait at the banquet, where I inhale the odor of other men's cake, and hear the plash of others' wine. What do you mean? I asked. That married women please me most, he said. Of course, I knew it all the time, but was surprised that he owned it to me. But lately, he went on, my wonted pose of looker-on has been disturbed. I have just been a heavy loser by getting too absorbed in another man's game. What was it? Pharaoh? No. Yes. Yes. It was a very good game of Pharaoh. Do you know what that is? No. How is it played? It's all chance, he replied. The first card loses, and the second card wins. He bowed and loitered off through the whirling, jostling throng. I was glad to lose sight of his cynical smile and sound of his affected roll. It was two or three hours later, just twelve o'clock, when, tired of dancing, I sat listening to the Oginski and waiting for Sam, who stood not far off, telling someone of the lovelorn legend of the music. After the last bar, I heard his words. Here the Polish lover, mad with despair, went from the ballroom out into the night and shot himself. A chilly wind swept round me. A gust that tore my fan out of my tight-gloved left hand, which was trying to also hold bouquet and handkerchief while I beckoned Sam to come. They must have opened the window somewhere, I told him. Do have it closed. I feel the wind too, now I come here, he said, picking up my fan and going to see about it. But he came back without finding any reason for the blast. I feel it only here, he said. But we went to our rooms. As we left the elevator, a rush of cold air again chilled us to the marrow. I shivered, and trying to draw my cloak more closely around me, the fan slipped out of my hand as if someone had snatched it, and in some odd chance was thrown over the banisters as we passed the stairs, and falling many feet on the marble pavement was wholly shattered. I could have cried. I was so vexed to lose it. I wished I had taken the cherry stone bracelet. The house seems full of draughts tonight, said Sam, as he locked our door. Shivering too, I answered, 
I wonder how far Mrs. Capel has got on her journey. She can't be colder in the cars than we are here, said Sam, poking the fire, which we always have at night. But all at once, it seemed to have been needless, for we had to open the windows. Sam tried to comfort me for the loss of the fan, but he was in a very jolly mood and kept pirouetting all through the rooms. By Jove, he cried. This is a world worth living in, isn't it? Oh, Minnie, you looked as sweet as a peach tonight. I'm so proud of you. I'm very sorry about your fan. Oh, I am, said I. There's nothing like it in this country. Not only that, he said, but I hate to have Mark know it was ruined. But I'm happy tonight. I can't grieve so much. Come and kiss me, Minnie. Dear Sam, there never was a more fond and faithful husband. How I pity wise with husbands who can be false. Second part. Passage from the Diary of Mrs. Capel. Thursday morning. My nerves have been so shaken by the ordeal I have passed that I could not rest well last night. As I lay in my berth, the very motion of the train seemed to throb against my brain. You are not the same poor creature who passed over this very road a week ago. Not the same. Not the same. I could not keep from thinking of poor old Mark. How true he had been. But what folly it would have been to trust any man again. I drew my watch from under my head, made out to see that the hands were on twelve and then dropped to sleep as to a series of strange visions. Out of blank darkness suddenly shapes itself before me, that fan from India which will confront me. I cannot turn so that it does not follow, until I see and cry out, Why, the figure has gone from the picture! Then it all vanishes. Now I see the beach near the cliff house. There is a full moon and Mark paces there alone, though a high wind is blowing. But such a weight is on my soul that I groan myself awake. Could he have been there, I wonder? Was his mind, looking out on a moonlit sea and lovely sands, reflected in mine, and vividly defined against the chiaroscuro of dreamland? Then I am in a ballroom, the band playing the wildly sad Aginsky, full of deep-drawn sighs and longing. I am conscious of a swarm of dancers, yet seem to be only sure of Samuel and my lovely friend, who sits near him, looking very beautiful, and takes no notice of Mark, who comes up with some queer disfigurement of his face, and behaves very strangely, snatching her fan out of her hand and flinging it on the floor. Probably I dreamed this because I knew he disliked to see her have it. She pays no heed to him, but shivers. Samuel gets her fan. And soon, they all three lead the hall. She and Claire acting as if chilly. Mark again tears the fan from her and dashes it down as if from some great height. Dreamlike, she does not notice him, though grieved to lose her fan which, I see, is shivered to bits. Then I lose sight of all of them. I hang across the firm but unseen arm of some shadowy presence that bears me away with it. 
I hear no voice, but feel borne in upon me these words, beyond even the possibilities of money. I float in mid-air, though it does not seem so much that I move higher and higher as that my old surroundings drop away. Is that the city, with its net of lights far below, and that vast silver shield must be the ocean? Clouds bar off that view. I am chilled and breathless. How dazzling the stars grow. Is that dim speck our world? Down there, by the moon. Is this? I feel the unseen arm lose its hold, and the vapor that seems like a presence shoots far above, as if torn from me. I am falling, falling through endless depths. I awoke with a convulsed start to find myself in the swinging train with a crazy beat upon my brain. Not the same. Oh, not the same. Third part. Paragraph from San Francisco Papers of Thursday evening. Last night, Mark Dillon left the hop at the hotel and with a party of gentlemen drove to the cliff house. Leaving them at supper, he went out on the beach at midnight and shot himself in the temple. No cause for the suicide is known. He was a man of refinement and culture, but had spent most of his fortune in foreign travel. He was well known in society as musician and poet, and in his pocket were found these lines, dated yesterday. Title, A Lost Hope Oft when the sun has set, a wondrous afterglow will linger yet. Through darkening dome, the trailing gorgeous hues unite, dissolve, slow change to shadows gray, as echoes of some haunting tune perplex that come and go and vex, and all the idler's hollow thought confuse with occult sway. When a great hope has set, long must its halo stir a deep regret, illuminating oft the gloomy thought with rays from sunken argosy, the floating cloud of foiled sweet fancies hued, by it are viewed, with aching heart and soul that, half distraught, yearn, oh how helplessly. End of section 14 Recording by Mary Scarno.